Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I'm your host, Stephen Pinecker, and I have a special co-host, Nathan Smith. And the reason why we're doing this is we're going to be launching a new podcast. And uh, what we decided to do was uh, Nathan actually picked out these guests, um, Lincoln Cannon and Carl Lung, uh, Youngblood, who are with the Mormon Transhumanist Association. And uh, they're a very fascinating group. Uh, they uh, they also have a Christian Humanist Association too, which we got to talk about that. But uh, just a real quick uh, about Nathan. Uh, as you know, all know Nathan from my previous interviews. But he's an undergraduate student at Texas State. He's been writing essays on Medium since 2018. Has just become is transitioning to YouTube. Um, the name of the podcast is Mind Makes This World. It explores theories, principles, and practices for developing emotional intelligence and mental health, grappling with psychology, philosophy, literature, religion, and other adjacent fields. We explore how we and others make sense of and find meaning in our experiences. So that's kind of the a statement of principles of what your channel is all about. Nathan, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Steve. I am excited to join all of you, and uh, I'm excited to, uh, you know, finally be launching my YouTube channel. Uh, it's it's very exciting. That's great. So, uh, guys, Lincoln and Carl, I, I just want to welcome you guys to our program. Now, just just so you all know, what this is, is this is part one. We're going to do part one of Mormon book reviews, and then part two is going to be on Nathan's YouTube channel. So we're going to be transitioning then to, so we're going to release our episodes simultaneously. So when you're done watching this episode, I want you to switch over to Nathan's channel to watch part two. Lincoln, Carl, thanks so much for coming on the program. Lincoln, I'd like for you to just introduce yourself briefly. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Steve and, and Nathan for having us on the show. It's, it's a pleasure and an honor. I, uh, I've been looking forward to, to talking with you. My background is um, kind of a mix of things. I'm both a technologist and a philosopher. I've worked in the software industry for decades. Uh, currently, I'm an entrepreneur in the e-commerce space selling uh, nootropic and uh, other dietary supplements for cognitive enhancement and healthy aging. And then um, in education-wise, I have uh, degrees in philosophy and business. And I'm also, of, of course, uh, one of the founders of the Mormon Transhumanist Association and also one of the founders of the Christian Transhumanist Association that you mentioned. And I'm, I'm excited to talk about these things with you. Well, that's great. Thank, thanks again, Lincoln, for doing this. We really appreciate it. Uh, Carl, uh, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, I also am a co-founder of the Mormon Transhumanist Association. Uh, I've made a career in software engineering, uh, but I have a kind of broad eclectic set of interests in uh, music. I used to be a clarinet performance major and um, also like to sing, uh, do do uh, a lot of acapella music and stuff like that. Um, and I've just, you know, had a background in both the humanities and in um, the sciences. And uh, this kind of weird combination of things has uh, given me a perspective that I think has informed my uh, explorations in the Mormon Transhumanist Association uh, to try to look at both um, the interesting, cool, gee whiz aspects of science, but also some of the eth ethical ramifications of um, science and technology as well. So I'm really excited to be with you guys today and, um, you know, fire away with your questions, I guess. Great. That's awesome. So, you know, Lincoln, when we were uh, talking the very first time, um, you had mentioned that, yeah, I'm part of the uh, I also helped found the Christian uh, Humanist, I mean, Transhumanist Association. I'm like, I thought, okay, now I can see transhumanism fitting in with Mormon doctrine. Uh, it actually kind of almost makes sense. But within <laughs> Christian doctrine, 
Seems like that's pretty wild stuff, dude. And one of the things that we talked a little bit about was the idea of the Christian concept. Now, I know it's not your the theological position, and the, uh, but the Christian concept of original sin, that we are born evil in need of a savior, and that Jesus died, died on the cross and rose from the grave to redeem mankind who needed that. And, and also would we would grant immortality as a result of, you know, the transgressions with Adam, you know, the, the theological implications of that. And then the idea is, is that we would create this group of people that would no longer feel the need for a savior if they are granted immortality. I just thought that's an interesting Christian question to grapple with. And I just thought, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So um, as you pointed out, Mormonism has a different take on original sin. We, we kind of reject the notion of original sin, but we don't reject the notion of the pervasive and persistent need for grace, nor do we reject the um, doctrine that uh, Jesus um, plays an important role in that, um, even the principal role in that, and that we're all in need of grace through what we call the atonement. Uh, th this, this is well accepted among pretty much all Mormons, of course. And even though we interpret the original sin differently than other Christians, many other Christians, that doesn't mean that we don't um, have deep reverence for the work and the mission of Jesus Christ. Um, likewise, the, the Christian Transhumanist Association, um, I, I would very strongly disagree with the characterization that the Christian Transhumanist Association uh, promotes a version of Christianity that would no longer need Christ. To the contrary, what the Christian Transhumanist Association advocates, and which I completely support, is that transhumanism is not only compatible with, but complementary to uh, Christianity, and that the role and mission of Jesus Christ actually necessitates, it even mandates, that we participate in the world as co-creators and co-workers with Jesus Christ in engaging in that reconciliation and atonement that he exemplifies and to which he invites us. So far from being something that kind of um, rejects the need for a savior, Christian transhumanism invites us to recognize the absolute necessity of grace and that Jesus invites us to participate in uh, partaking and sharing that grace. So that's very interesting to me, and and and, and uh, Carl also, I, I would like for you to you know chime in on this as well. Maybe just add to to this. So like, okay, so the argument could be made that okay, the purpose of what Jesus did at the cross was to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and maybe the idea of granting immortality to humanity is that it would enable the, the Christians of planet Earth to actually spread the gospel throughout the universe because you would be immortal and you could actually take the time to like transport yourself to other galaxies and stuff to spread the gospel. Is that, is that some, a, an idea that's sometimes bantered about? Um, well, it, it's certainly discussed uh, something kind of similar is discussed, but I think we're kind of getting a little bit of ahead of ourselves in the sense that I think even before we talk about future uh, technological capabilities of humanity, I think um, it's important to point out that um uh, you know, Christians throughout the ages have explored and contemplated and um, been baffled by the atonement of Jesus Christ and have had various theories of atonement and how atonement functions. And, um, 
you know, some it, it would be really we would be remiss if we didn't point out that many uh, Christians of all varieties have disagreed about the exact nature of the atonement and have focused on different aspects of the atonement. So when you asked if um, Christ was essentially teaching certain things to humanity that in order for them to go about uh, doing, you know, good works of their own, uh, that I think is one particular view on the atonement that's been shared by several Christian fathers uh, in the early uh, days of Christianity. Uh, and this was called the moral influence theory of atonement. There's a great wiki, Wikipedia article on theories of atonement, and they can go through you know various theories. One of them is called penal substitution, and this is the notion that some particular act on the part of Jesus Christ was performed that uh, allowed Christ to essentially pay the price that needed to be paid for the sins of humanity that humanity could not pay. Um, but this, you know, many other Christians have at least had concerns about this sort of quid pro quo aspect of sin and thinking of sin as sort of like uh, a number of, th you know, rocks that you pile on one side of the scale and then you then Christ has to come in and put more rocks on the scale. And, you know, some people are saying, well, you just added to Christ's rocks and now you've made him really deeply sorrowful, you know, as a result. Of There's so many ethical quandaries that come about as a result of this, in my opinion, rather simplistic view of atonement. But what I think, regardless of how you feel about the penal substitution theory, I think it's incomplete in the sense that it fails to acknowledge that the atonement of Christ has the purpose of exalting humanity, has the purpose of redeeming humanity. And when I look at different theories and different theologies, I'm always interested in what the outcomes of these beliefs are, what, what they produce in the world, the kinds of human behaviors that they promote. And I've come to see that um, a focus exclusively on the penal substitution theory tends to cause many people, Christians, um, members of our church as well, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or commonly known as the Mormons, uh, to focus on individual salvation too much at the expense of social justice. You know, ultimately, Christ's atonement has the purpose of uniting and reconciling all humankind, right? And if you're only concerned about getting right with God as at a personal level, but not about ultimately redeeming humanity and serving and loving your neighbor and going out in the world and fixing all the problems that are in the world until they're gone, you're not fully committed to atonement, in my opinion. And the full purpose of atonement is to achieve that. And so if we're if we stop at just making sure that our sins, our personal sins are paid for, we're we're not done, right? And uh, focusing on these different theories of atonement or studying these different theories of atonement, I think helps us to understand that the atonement is multifaceted and that if we focus exclusively on one view or another, we're missing some really important things. Thank, thank you, Carl, for those insights. Very interesting to me. You know, one of the things when I was, uh, I was checking out the Christian humanist, um, transhumanist uh, website this morning, and the one thought that dawned on me as I'm reading, scrolling through it was, if transhumanism is inevitable, then it probably is very important that Christians are part of it 
Uh, because if it's if if that's where if I mean like you could argue this is the evolutionary inevitability that we will ultimately become immortal because of you know with science and all this kind of stuff that if it's a purely secular endeavor that's maybe where the danger comes in. Yeah, for I, sure. I think I think you've you've nailed it. We we need we need to have the most compassionate and most creative, most courageous people possible, whether they're Christians and otherwise, involved in shaping the future of humanity. And the inspiration and the tradition, the things that we've learned, the influences that we've received from Christianity are of paramount importance, in my estimation, to shaping that future. You know, and I would just add that um, a lot of people, when they think of transhumanism, think of something really weird and esoteric and sci-fi. Maybe they think of X-Files and green aliens and stuff like that um or you know um weird conspiracy theories about like people getting chips and sur surreptitiously implanted in their bloodstreams or whatever um you know i think what what's really interesting about transhumanism is it, it spread it spans all the way into our future but also looks at our past and looks at how humanity from the very beginning i think what's characterized humanity is in its um, innate yearning for transcendence or for pushing beyond the boundaries that um, we currently have. So if you look at the earliest humans, one of the things that characterizes early humanity is the invention of fire, right? And the ability then to cook their food and how drastically that changed their gut, flora, and fauna, and all sorts of aspects of of how the human uh, species um, improved and progressed in various ways, right? And um, we look at uh, technologies that I think most people would find commonplace today, such as uh, glasses, reading glasses, or uh, prosthetics, you know, peg legs have been around for centuries, right? These are all ways that humanity has chosen to enhance its innate abilities and most Christians don't really have problems with um, these kind of old hat technologies. It's only the new ones that freak them out. There's this funny saying by um, Douglas Adams, the, the famous author of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He said something like, you know, anything that was around when you were born is like something that is just a part of the natural order of the world. Something that was invented while you were young is maybe something cool that you could get a job in. And then anything that comes out after you're 30 is an assault against the natural order of things. Right. <laughs> and uh, so his point is that like, you know, we're, we're naturally suspicious of, you know, especially as we get older, I guess it's, a, you know, just we, we become curmudgeons and we think that these things are insane, but I'm sure there probably was a time when people looked at others using glasses and were very suspicious of mm. them, you know, or, you know, maybe they, you know, felt like going out and lynching the first person to invent a, a peg leg or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's clothing it's itself and, and, is technology, right? It, so, it is. Anyway. That's, that's an excellent point. And Nathan, I, I, I want, I want you to chime in here in a second. Um, uh, but one of the, I, I do want to tell you that I had a relative, I think an aunt or a great aunt <clears throat> who refused to take pain medication when she was in labor because she felt that would be um, you know, that we you know you're supposed to experience pain at childbirth. That's one of the curses. So that's kind of a mentality of not using science. And I mean, it's pretty hardcore, I'd have to say. 
Yeah, you know, there's a passage of the New Testament in the Epistle of James where James kind of jokes around about that kind of perspective on faith. He, he says, you know, well, you have faith, that's great, but what are you doing about it? If you see somebody who's um, lying on the side of the road naked and without clothes, do you just say, be clothed, be fed, and, and, that, and that's sufficient? No, he says, you actually have to give them clothes. You actually have to feed them, and then you've exercised your, then you've demonstrated, and then think about the ramifications here. Clothing and food are the products of manufacturing and, and agricultural technologies. And, and there's other examples of this pervasively through the Bible where we need to act and we need to use the means that God has already inspired us to develop to engage in those actions in more efficient, more effective ways. So, you know, there's, there's quite a case to be made against the position that there's somehow some kind of innate, most natural version of doing, participating in God's work that we're supposed to embrace at, and avoid some, somehow these technologies. I mean, humans we ourselves, our very organism, the human body has been domesticated by human actions for thousands of years. So even our anatomy is a form of technology in the broadest sense. All right, Nathan, why don't you chime in here, dude? Yeah, I, uh, I would actually be, I'd be curious to know what y'all think of this, that, so if, if transhumanism, uh, a movement that I think many people associate with like a very deliberately secular approach to the world and, and, and in many ways, maybe a deliberately non-religious approach to the world. If transhumanism is the the ethical pursuit of advanced technologies, what would you say that Mormonism and even more broadly Christianity has to offer to that conversation that maybe a more deliberately non-religious point of view might be lacking? Well, we identify a few things in um, a seminal article that we published in Sunstone Magazine in 2006 or seven, I believe. Um, one of the things we find is that many secular, um, you know, technologists and uh, entrepreneurs and other innovators um, think of themselves as being in an adversarial relationship with people who come from more traditional backgrounds, you know, whether they be religious or just um, the uh, curmudgeons that we talked about. Right. And um, what we found invariably is that, you know, if you approach uh, these, these groups with deep suspicion, you're less likely to, to make progress, right. You're, you, you can't leverage the benefits that they could provide. Um, you know, whatever your politics are, um, they're, are a lot of charities, for example, out there that are overtly religious, right? And many governments have now realized that, you know, these these people already are out there and willing to do good in the world. Why don't we um, join forces rather than, you know, just see ourselves as as antagonistic to them? So we we think that um, by helping both secular audiences to understand religious people better, and also helping religious people to understand the perspective of these secular transhumanists better and see where they both can can bring value and can add value can really help us to accelerate and improve the pace of human progress. Lincoln, did you have anything else there? Yeah, I, I would add that there's some there's some irony in the anti-religious version of transhumanism, and that is that religion itself is the most powerful social technology. And it's demonstrated that over and over again through human history, both for good and for evil. Power is not inherently good or evil, right? It's just power. And, and so we have these um, self-identifying technologists and engineers 
who um, maybe are even advocates of, of what contemporary social technology is understood to be in just the information technology sense, who are overlooking the profound and ancient and enduring uh, power of religion. And so one of the strengths of religious transhumanism is that we recognize religion as the most powerful social technology. And we realize that it has been used for both good and evil. And so something about the way that we approach the world needs to account for that. And part of our mission and part of our effort is to help people develop good applications of religion to complement good applications of other technologies such that we can work together to make a better world for, for all of us. You know, one other real quick thing I want to add that just came to mind is that, um, you know, someone who's come from a religious background where generally there are some aspects of self-abnegation usually um, is, is cautious in certain instances where maybe a, a person from a more secular background might not be. That can be both good and bad. But, but an example is, um, you know, I've seen many secular transhumanists who are very deep, very kind of tightly focused on some of the hedonistic aspects of technology, how it could enable us to experience greater pleasure, greater enjoyment. These aren't necessarily innately evil, but uh, I think that someone from a more religious background, um, depending on their perspective and their religion, I'm not saying religion is flawless, um, might be more oriented towards, um, you know, the ways that technology could benefit the least of these, you know, the, 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 the people on the margins also maybe more in tune to, um, the potential pitfalls of technology gone wrong. And so in this sense, I think that, um, it's really important for religious people to be involved in, in these, um, pursuits because, they might they bring an ethical framework to the discussion that might be lacking in cer in certain circles. You know, extending a little bit more on what Carl just said, um, one of the reasons why religion is the most powerful social technology is because it's excellent at creating and perpetuating narratives, and those narratives give purpose and meaning to our lives. They shape our lives. They shape our our thoughts and our words and our actions, and those in turn reshape the world. And one of the weaknesses, as it turns out, of secular transhumanism is narrative. Lots of people just think it's icky and weird. And religion, because of its longstanding tradition, longstanding strength in developing more powerful and influential and provocative narratives, can apply this power in more aesthetically pleasing ways for many more people worldwide than some kind of secular transhumanism tends to be able to do. Nathan, do you have a follow-up? I do. <laughs> I always do, Steve. Uh, I would ask uh, on top of that, Lincoln, I've, I've heard you specifically say this, but I'm sure uh, Lincoln and Carl that, that this is a sentiment you both agree with. Uh, Lincoln, I've heard you say that Mormonism mandates transhumanism. I think that's a really interesting thing because I think a lot of folks would consider transhumanism, if not um, maybe a, a foreign importation into religion, at, at the very least a lens through which someone might read religion. But I find it interesting that Mormonism itself, according to your view, it, it, it almost leads you naturally or organically to transhumanism. Could you talk a little bit about, uh, the both of you, could you talk a little bit about the aspects of Mormonism that you feel most organically feed into transhumanism? Go ahead, yeah. Lincoln, why don't you start? 
All right, sure. Yeah, so I, I, I have argued that I do believe that, that Mormonism mandates transhumanism. And I would suggest that even if um, Mormons don't explicitly identify as transhumanists, most of us are implicitly transhumanists, even if we don't know what the word means, or even if, even if we think the word's weird or, or spooky in some way. And the reason I, I say that um, depends a bit on understanding the definition of transhumanism and depends a bit on understanding uh, Mormon theology. Um, first of all, the definition of transhumanism that I commonly use is the ethical um, advocacy for the ethical use of technology to enhance human abilities. Um, so with that definition in mind, think about Mormon theology. Well, in Mormon theology, there, there are a few interesting and to some extent relatively unique aspects of our theology. One of those is that in Mormonism, God is embodied and we emphasize the idea that humanity should become like God, that we should become embodied deified persons, not abstract deified, not non-deified. We should become deified. We should become like God. We should become gods. And that we, in the process, remain embodied. We don't lose our bodies, but our bodies become immortal and exalted and glorified per Mormon theology. Now, there are, are some other Christians who teach all of those ideas um, to varying extents, but Mormonism emphasizes those, those aspects of Christian tradition. And so you've got this idea that we should become like God in an embodied, glorified sense. And that means that we should become more intelligent. Our, our bodies should become more robust and great with greater longevity, even immortal uh, longevity. And how do we do that? Well, in Mormon theology, it's not enough to sit on our hands and wait for God to do all that. To the contrary, per the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and our interpretation of the Bible, we have to engage in that work with God. If the work and glory of God is to bring about the immortality and, and eternal life of humanity, our work and glory is to share in that work and glory and participate in it. You know, faith without works is dead, like the Bible says. And the Book of Mormon, for example, teaches over and over again that God operates through means. God gives us means and expects us to use those means to participate in the work and gain the promised blessings in the future. There's a great passage um, in the Book of Alma where Captain Moroni is talking about this and he goes and he actually gets really mad at the leader of Zarahemla. At, uh, contextually, as it turns out, he was wrong about the leader of Zarahemla, but the, the doctrinal point is, is still salient and important. The doctrinal point he makes is that, listen, you might think that God is going to save you from being destroyed, but God has given us all of these means to save ourselves from this disaster and we're not using them. And I tell you that God is not going to save us unless we make use of all of the means that God has already given us. And this is, that if I could just interject, this is what we mean when we're talking about grace as well. God has graced us with all of these things. These are a part of God's grace and we're rejecting God's grace when we don't make use of those means. Go ahead, Lincoln. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I completely agree. As Carl, as Carl points out, this has everything to do with grace and reconciliation and atonement and our ultimately our participation in it, right? Because God gives us the means. And then in turn, we become, as the New Testament says, ambassadors of the reconciliation. It's our job to then go extend these means to other people, use them for other people to help other people. And then they in turn can also participate in this reconciliation, in this atonement, along with us, along with God. But anyway, taking this back then to the definition of transhumanism, if transhumanism is about ethically using technology or means to become super intelligent superhumanity, 
well, isn't that what Mormonism is also saying? That we're supposed to use means to help each other become like God? Embodied, glorified, you know, compassionate, super intelligent beings. So my argument is, is that Mormonism implicitly requires, mandates that we approach the world in this way that functionally is equivalent to transhumanism, even if the words are different. Um, I'm curious, uh, within this context of like uh, Mormon transhumanism, the, you know, of course, one of the things is, of course, that you'll, you'll become a god, potentially of a planet or a creation. Would this inevitably lead, immortality lead to the point where you would actually be capable of creating new worlds? I think I would um, first uh, point out that uh, this notion of get your own planet, I think, right. became especially popular with the Book of Mormon musical. Um, and maybe prior to that, the um, sort of hit piece, the God Makers. God Makers, right. Pen pointed it out a little bit. Um, but it's really kind of um, a cartoonified um, sort of like caricature of what um, the Mormon conception of exaltation might be. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that maybe it hasn't been encouraged at times by Mormon musicals that um, themselves might be a little trite, you Saturday's know, Saturday's warriors. Yeah, exactly. So, but this notion that like, Oh, okay, Mr. Youngblood, here is your planet, <laughs> you know, in, you know, getting up to the pearly gates and, and being assigned a, a Lieutenant, you know, you know, you know, leader of a planet or whatever kind of um, glory or exaltation is really, um, I think, uh, a pretty crazy kind of uh, extrapolation from our earthly experiences here that may or may not apply in the distant, far flung future of humanity. Right. So um, whenever we whenever people create these kind of caricatures, often you got to look at what their motive is. And sometimes it's the motive is ridicule, right? Um, and and I, I don't personally find that particular idea of being in charge of a planet. Is that exciting in the, um, in the eternities? I mean, maybe it's kind of cool in the sense that like, oh, you know, like, let's, let's look at the near future, right? And the the discussion around the the settlement on Mars, right? The idea that humans might settle Mars. That's kind of cool to think about, but I don't get my jollies off of thinking, oh, I could be in charge of all this. Ooh, <laughs> you know, this is like, you know, my, this isn't my greatest aspiration, right? Um, and I don't think it should be the aspiration of a compassionate uh, Christian either, or, or Mormon for that matter, right? Um, I think instead, when we look at exaltation, we should be thinking in a transcendent way at whatever the greatest, most noble, most compassionate aspirations of humanity are. Think about what we perceive, um, however limited our perspective might be, what we perceive God to be and what those um, ideal virtues that God might have and, and then think, oh, those are the things we should be aspiring to in, in the hereafter, right? And so... Um, just, I just want to get rid of those, like, you know, preface this by talking about those characters as being probably simplistic, but I think in general, you could say that the human, um, goal is to expand our capacities and to use these expanded capacities to, to do good in the world and to lift one another up and, um, to take good care of the creation, whatever that might be in a, in whatever far flung 
distant realms we might someday uh, inhabit. Yeah, so building on what Carl said and and completely consistent with it, uh, most uh, Mormons and most Mormon transhumanists do aspire to a, a let's call it super creative future. Um, a, a future where we can engage in creative acts that right now are, you know, only um, beginning to be imagined in works of, of scripture and science fiction. And um, so when people talk about, are you going to create a planet? Well, or be in charge of a planet? Well, how about thinking about how the scriptures already really describe it and how Mormon tradition already really describes it? As Joseph Smith re-translated um, or interpreted the creation story, um, it's the gods, plural, who engaged in the creation. So it's not just me egotistically, you know, as Carl did with his fingers, um, controlling a planet, but perhaps we will work together as a sublime, uh, glorified, super intelligent community to compassionately create opportunities for new persons to grow and develop and experience love and engage in future creative acts like we have. That would be perfectly consistent with Mormon theology. And it also would be perfectly consistent with some of the greatest aspirations of transhumanism, where many transhumanists uh, think that we will ultimately have the capacity to compute new worlds, um, many of them, and that we would, would have the opportunity to use our experiences in those new worlds to learn and to grow. And now, of course, some transhumanists have extremely egotistical approaches to these things, as do some Mormons. But I think that the best um, characterization, uh, you know, the strongest characterization of Mormons and transhumanists who are thinking ethically about these issues realize that egotism in our approach to such things, of course, is not a virtue. And that there ought to be, and there surely are, altruistic approaches to creation and even meta-creation, the creation of more creators. And I think that's ultimately what, what the highest aspirations of Mormonism and transhumanism are about. And that is about becoming meta-creators ourselves and creating more of them in compassionate ways, ethical ways. Okay. I would just, if I could just chime in one little additional thing I would add that our Christian transhumanist uh, friends also you know, really emphasize the fact that in the garden, humanity was given the responsibility of naming the creation and uh, being stewards over the creation, right? And um, that really what this involves is uh, helping the creation to achieve its highest level of flourishing, right? Um, living and, you know, creating in sustainable ways that don't destroy the creation, but that uh, cultivate it, Right. Um, and so this really, it, it fits right in with Christian uh, doctrine as well. Well, and that actually leads to the question I was going to ask is that, you know, you had mentioned there are other Christians that maybe have similar views and stuff like that. What other Christians have, like, is it Eastern Orthodoxy or types of Christians that are kind of interested in, in are, are becoming transhumanists? What, 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 uh, what, 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 who are you finding are the ones that are most likely to embrace the idea of Christian transhumanism? The membership of the Christian Transhumanist Association is diverse. There are Catholics, there are Eastern Orthodox, there are Church of Christ, there are main, mainline Protestants, 
And there are even some evangelical hmm. um, uh, Christians. Although I would say that, like, if you were to look at the makeup of Christianity as a whole in the world, the that evangelical Christians are probably underrepresented in the Christian Transhumanist Association. And some other groups, such as, for example, Mormons, may be overrepresented in the Christian Transhumanist Association. But it, but it is still quite a diverse group of people. One thing I would add is um, I've seen that a lot of the people who are interested in transhumanism have gone through some kind of a faith struggle, some kind of a questioning period where uh, some of the sort of simplified narratives of their youth um, um, start to break down or they start to see challenges. And they're, they're trying to reconcile the, the aspects of their faith that they most valued with the more complex world that they're starting to become aware of, right? Um, and say, well, do I have to jettison all of these things that I've been taught? Or is there a way of um, synthesizing some of the, th the new things that I'm learning with the the good values and virtues that uh, that I've been raised with. Nathan, you got to be loving this, dude. Why don't yeah, you man, chime in? I here? am. I'm in a bit of my Disneyland here. I uh, like I've I've mentioned off camera before. I've I've known about the MTA since like 2011 or 12. Um, one of the one of the the things that was most interesting to me about first learning about Mormon transhumanism was that. Transhumanism is a very inherently, uh, let's say, utopian and progressive vision in the sense that it, it has very high hopes for humanity. And it's progressive in the sense that it sees us building, if not consistently, at least in a long-term sense, consistently toward a very impressive, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, almost unimaginable outcome. I, I find that that contrasts, however, with, um, let's say, maybe normative views of how the world will end within Christianity more generally, and even within Mormonism, um, that there is this almost like pessimistic worldview that we see that the world is going to fall to pieces. And I mean, among many Latter-day Saints, even there's a very tight narrative of we will, uh, you know, return to Jackson County, the world will be falling apart. I mean, there's even folkloric aspects of we'll have to pull handcarts to to Missouri rather than be able to drive our own cars. And I think that I will probably die in doomsday if that's the case, because I am not going to do that. I'll take heaven instead. But uh, how how would um, transhumanism and Mormonism or even Christianity more broadly, how do you reconcile this, um, I guess, doomer approach to the cosmos with this incredibly uh, optimistic approach to human potential. Yeah, you know, I'd start by pointing out that that interpretation of Christianity and Mormonism, that pessimistic interpretation, has grounds, of course, in our scriptures, but is ultimately a far from complete account of the scriptures. When we look at the scriptures, and particularly the Bible, the Bible starts, of course, with a holy garden, and some Christians uh, get overly interested in returning to the Holy Garden, when in reality, the Bible ends with a holy city, no longer a holy garden, but a holy city. Uh, it's called the New Jerusalem or Zion in the, the New Testament. And so there's this arc of development in the Bible from holy garden to holy city. And along the way, um, it, you know, thinking of the book of Revelation, which tends to inform a lot of these doomsday Christian perspectives, there are significant risks that are presented. And some people look at these risks, these, these 
terrifying, frightening prophecies in the book of Revelation as inevitabilities and as a necessary destruction of the world before God comes and cleans it all up for us. But again, that doesn't account for the nature of prophecy as repeatedly demonstrated throughout the Bible. The best example of this that I know of in the Bible is the story of Jonah and Nineveh. Um, as people know, Jonah is called to go prophesy to Nineveh, and God tells Jonah, go tell Nineveh that they will be destroyed. God does not tell Jonah, they'll be destroyed if they don't repent. He doesn't say that. He just says, they will be destroyed, period. And so Jonah, of course, at first doesn't want to do it, goes, gets swallowed by the fish, repents, and he finally goes on his way to Nineveh. Um, when he gets to Nineveh, he says, well, Nineveh, you're going to be destroyed. And then he walks up into the hills, pulls out his popcorn and starts chomping away to watch the to watch the fireworks. As it turns out, though, Nineveh repents and God decides not to destroy Nineveh. And then Jonah, of course, gets angry at God and says, God, and this is a paraphrase, God, you made me look like a moron and I'm pissed off at you. And, and then God responds, hey, listen, there are a lot of great cattle in Nineveh and they repented. So I, I'm good with this. Um, <laughs> and I'm being a little bit, I'm being a little bit facetious, but the, the, the core principle of the story here is that like everything in the Hebrew tradition of prophecy, the Hebrew tradition of prophecy is not about fortune telling. It's not about fatalism. Instead, it's about forth telling. It's about a provocative interaction from God with humanity to steer us away from risks and to steer us toward opportunities, to steer us away from death and destruction toward immortality and eternal life. And so when we approach these frightening prophecies of the book of Revelation, we should take the same attitude that Nineveh took. And that attitude should be, look, there are huge risks to the future of humanity. Horrifying, terrifying, dangerous stuff. But these are not inevitabilities. God is warning us of these risks. And yet God is also promising us to participate in the throne, right? There's this throne that doesn't have just one person in it, that we're called to, be, to sit on with God, to become one with God, to become one with Jesus, to take on the name of Christ, to engage as ambassadors of that reconciliation or atonement of Christ to make the world a better place and to participate in that holy city at the end of the world. You know, and I think that this, is, this account of the Bible and of Christianity, of Mormonism is, is the more holistic account that yes, of course there are terrible possibilities, but our calling is to work with each other to overcome those risks and to attain heaven on earth together. So just real quick, and Carl, I want you to chime in on this too, but um, what about another city that was built? And that would be the city that built the Tower of Babel. And this city was using technology. It was a united, humanity was be, being united. It seemed to be striving towards transhumanism in one sense. And God uh, put the kibosh on that whole thing. Well, how, how do you interpret that story? Yeah, um, so I look at the Babel story as... Um, an example of sort of the the potential negatives of you know technology gone wrong um, or of the limitations of human um, you know foresight and 
what I see there is that um, it wasn't necessarily that pursuing transcendence or um, striving for improvement was the the sin that humanity committed there. But it was doing something in a way that was ultimately not going to get it anywhere. It was ultimately counterproductive. And also, I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, um, this is a kind of cultural legacy that we've inherited from generation upon generation of, of storytellers, you know, passed down over the years. And so what we're also seeing in this is humanity's own fear of its own abilities, right? Um, expressed through the prophets who wrote down this story. And so we shouldn't just merely take it at face value, but we should also wrestle with the story itself and say, well, how much of this is warranted fear versus um, a curmudgeonly response on the part of humanity as well? Um, but there's lots of different directions you could take the Babel story. Lincoln, do you have any other thoughts on that story? Oh, yeah. we I could talk for a long time on this. Here, here's just one thought. Um, I, I think that the Babel story stands in important contrast to the story of Noah and the ark, which is very near it in the text, and other similar stories such as uh, Moses and the tabernacle and the temple and such, where we have on the one hand a, an egotistical application of technology in an effort to improve humanity. And on the other hand, we have altruistic um, applications of technology, divinely ordained applications of technology, but also to save and enhance humanity. In fact, as the, as the Bible narrative goes, Noah builds the ship and thereby re reboots humanity um, in a sense and becomes the, the, um, the new Adam. And some people have suggested that even these ancient uh, stories, these ancient mythologies, um, um, Noah and Adam end up having a lot in common um, in origin stories. Anyway, point being that technology plays a, 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 an important role in the Noah story. Technology is what saves humanity from complete destruction. And then later on, of course, when, when uh, Moses is described building the tabernacle and described building temples, the details that the Old Testament goes into are extraordinary and lengthy about the technologies um, used, the artisans and the engineers required. So it's very, very clear that the Bible from beginning to end is not anti-technology. The Bible is anti-egotism and anti-immorality. And using the means that God gives us in the wrong way, of course, is always denounced by the Bible. But simultaneously, it's repeatedly celebrated and even in detail de described and in many passages of the Bible. Um, Nathan, why don't you, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, having you ask the, the final question and uh, in a few minutes here. And what I'm thinking of doing is, will you, you ask the final question, but then the answer to that question will be when you are uh, hosting the program. Um, I think that'd be kind of cool, but I just, I find all this very fascinating. Um, one of the things I, I do want to just ask a quick question. Um, you guys, obviously you, you, part of you is doing like life extension, 
and uh, you know, taking care of yourself. You you have like a supplement company that uh, you know for help helping people uh, extend their lives and stuff like that. I'm curious um, if because you said you want to be able to live long enough that the point could come that you could then you know perhaps live forever. If that you get to the end and the technologies aren't there, would you consider doing cryogenics? Yeah, so I've been considering. It's actually uh, you know the term that we most often uses cryonics, uh, but, you know, very similar. Um, and uh, I've been considering it, but uh, kind of at a, in a slight local um, current quandary in terms of what technology is best to use for such a thing, because I've heard that the state of the art um, in the research labs is far beyond what commercially available uh, cryonic services can do. And so I'm sort of like taking a bit of a wait and see approach there, but um, I would be theoretically open to cryonics as a means of potentially allowing certain individuals to be revived more quickly than the rest of humanity, if you will, who died in a more conventional sense. Lincoln? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm definitely open to it. S similar perspective to Carl, I'm interested in in um, watching the technologies improve as they go along, I'd like I'd add to that from from a from a religious perspective. In the New Testament, Jesus commands us to raise the dead. Uh, a lot of Christians overlook that they focus on Jesus's commands to console each other, to heal each other, and and we're working on both of those all the time. Christians strongly support both of those efforts. But where Christians haven't done much work that I've ob observed, and a little bit maybe, but not much is on trying to follow up on this command from Jesus that we should raise the dead. And I, I think that cryonics and other technologies are means with which God has inspired us to pursue the fulfillment of that command. And I think that over time, we'll see other technologies come along that will make us, um, that will empower us to pursue fulfillment of that command in much better, more powerful, better, you know, more practical ways. But we've got what we've got today. And I think we should make try to make the best use of it that we can. Ultimately, I do trust in a universal resurrection that all dead persons um, who wish, at least, will be resurrected. And that God will, or already has, and we just yet haven't yet identified it, provide means for us to engage in that work, to participate in that work. God's not going to do everything for us. Part of the reason for life is that we develop and understand and gain wisdom about how to do the kinds of things that God does so that we can become like God. And so I trust that we will learn how to either identify or, or make better use or create means for engaging in a universal resurrection as well. But in the meantime, let's start with what we've got. I think that's how we, we um, best engage our discipleship of Jesus Christ. Hmm. Okay, that's very interesting. Now there's this Christian physicist, I think name is, I think it's Tipler. He, he advocated the idea that basically Ultimately, at the end, everybody will be downloaded and resurrected, like in some kind of like massive computer program that would ultimately lead to the resurrection of humanity. So maybe you could argue that we would be part of the process of building that that program or that software, if you will, to actually um, cause there to be a universal resurrection. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out that um, this whole notion of computed worlds or or the idea of uploading or downloading uh humans into some kind of a another computational substrate 
um, is an interesting kind of philosophical exploration, but it has also some um, challenges, I guess, to it. And that is that um, if, if what we're experiencing in that substrate is not as rich and as detailed as what we are experiencing right now, um, then it really is not, it's, it's, it's almost a curse rather than a blessing. And it's not as, um, fulfilling as the current embodiment that we experience, but then also on the other side of it, how do we know that what we're experiencing right now is not some type of a computed world? We really don't, we don't know the nature of the universe that we inhabit fully to the extent that we can't say that there are potentially other dimensions, computational substrates, whatever you want to call them, from which other beings might be observing us, right? And so really, we don't know the precise nature of our existence. And we shouldn't assume that um, merely because we're hearing this presented in some sort of technological terminology, that it's um, vastly different from what we're already experiencing. <laughs> anyway, those are just a couple thoughts there on that. Okay. Lincoln, I know you have thoughts on this. Um, well, yeah, sure. So speaking of Tipler, Tipler's ideas actually come from um, precedent. There, there was a Jesuit priest named Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, a French fellow, and also happened to be a scientist, a paleontologist who argued that, and he made this argument based on the confluence of both his theological education as a Catholic priest and his scientific education in paleontology. He made the argument that humanity um, has been evolving and continues to evolve toward godhood. And that along the way, um, in the same sense that our world has evolved a common biosphere, that in the future, our world would evolve a noosphere, he called it. And he, this is somebody who lived a long time before the internet, but he described what many people would understand something like the internet to, to have become since then, where we would become interconnected as a species, being able to access each other's ideas and thoughts more readily than they could at the time that Pierre lived. And, and, and so he, and he, and he, and he, if you will, prophesied that that would go even far further than the development of the noosphere into what he called an omega point, that the um, interconnection between humanity would go so far that it would um, uh, perhaps make what he would say, all of us become, God would be all in all, which is a quote from, of course, the Bible that he got that from, and the noosphere would interconnect everything and that the resurrection would and, and the return of Christ would ultimately be manifest through this omega point. Now, different Christian transhumanists um, will like or dislike or, and advocate or not advocate that idea to varying extents in various flavors and various ways. But I, I just wanted to point out that although this Jesuit priest um, did not identify as a transhumanist per se, he clearly was one in function and that Christianity and the ideas of Tipler and, and Christian transhumanists have excellent precedent in Christian history. And of course, Deschardins, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, got his ideas from even older Christians, and he was just developing them a little bit further based on his scientific education. Yeah, I think it's really important, folks, you know, especially my atheist viewers, many of you who 
um, may, may have had faith at one time. A lot of people say Christianity is an intellectual uh, dead end. And I'm like, just listen to this conversation. Think of the ideas that uh, Christianity has helped, um, you know, make contemplate and give us ideas and maybe looking at things a little bit differently. I don't know where I stand on this whole thing. I'm, I don't know if I'll ever become a Christian transhumanist, but I think it's important that we have these conversations and have these thought experiments and understand their implications, but also within the lens of a Christian concept, which I think is a beautiful thing because I don't think Christianity is about excluding itself from certain conversations. I think we sh Christianity should be involved in all the conversations because it is in one sense, a universal religion and we should be addressing all this, including the potentiality of man achieving immortality. And now we have to grapple with that. And what does that do with Christian um, theology and all that? So I think I think this is just a fascinating conversation. And uh, I'm just gonna... riffing, just riffing on what you just said really fast. Yeah. Um, we also the university system that the entire world has inherited came from the church as well. You know, it's kind of ironic that many current maybe more conservative Christians are telling their kids not to go off to those, you know, evil universities when in fact <laughs> we owe science and technology and research that occurs at those universities to the church in a, in a, in a large sense, you know, at least the origins of these institutions that um, we currently have. So oh, the glory of God is intelligence. So we just always have to remember that as well. It's one of my favorite lines. Uh, Nathan, uh, before I, uh, wind this thing up, I'd like for you to ask the question, the very first question that you're going to be asking when we transition over to your channel. Yeah, I uh, we, I think we will kick off part two of our conversation together with this question. I'd like to know what drew each of you to transhumanism in your personal histories and what it is about transhumanism that appeals to you personally. I think we've explored kind of the broader cultural and theological contexts for, for Mormon transhumanism. I would love to hear what transhumanism has to offer Lincoln Cannon and Carl Youngblood in particular. That sounds, sounds really good. good. Nathan, thank you so much for being uh, my co-host. Now I'm going to be the co-host to you on That's your right. show in a little bit that we'll be taping. Uh, Lincoln, thank you for coming on the program. Oh, Steve, my pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's, it's, uh, it's been fun to get to know you. You, you are, you have an exciting personality and I can see why your show is doing so well. You're also articulate, clearly well-educated and intelligent. I love it. It's great. You're doing great stuff. Well, thanks, Lincoln. I appreciate it. And Carl, thank you so much for coming on today. I really enjoyed it, Steve. Thanks so much for having me. So I just remind my audience to don't forget to like and subscribe and don't forget to hit the notification button for when a new episode comes out. There will be links in the description if you'd like to support the channel on PayPal or Patreon or check out the merch store. Go to mormonbookreviews.com, buy some merch. We cover a lot of stuff, including iPod holders, uh, it's crazy. All, all the stuff that you can buy on the channel. It's really awesome. As a matter of fact, Nathan, you've bought some stuff from the store. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah. um, and coffee mugs. Don't forget, we, for whatever reason, a lot of coffee mugs are being sold, which I think is very interesting. <laughs> uh, so either way, folks, I want to thank you all for uh, listening. I want to encourage you to uh, go to um, Nathan's channel, and I will have uh, at the end screen a link to that interview that, for part two. And I just remind my audience that all the voices of the restoration will be heard on Mormon Book Reviews. Thanks for joining us.